All right, welcome everyone. I would like um, to ask quite a substantial crowd to, to settle down a little bit. If we could close the doors at the back. People are still welcome to come in. I can still see some empty spots, but I'm going to kick off the session so that we can get going. Uh, first off, my name is Christoph. The session is called uh, Technology Insights. If you're not interested in technology or you're not interested in insights, then, then I'll allow you to make an elegant departure more right now. Otherwise, um, this is where you are. Um, we're going to have three TED-style talks on technology. And perhaps just as a couple of opening remarks, um, I have to say I'm ecstatic to see that we are entertaining more and more technology-related topics at actuarial conventions. In fact, if I rewind the clock about 10 or 15 years ago, the picture was very different. My recollection of the actuarial profession a decade ago is, is certainly one that, that almost looked down on technology as an inferior and unrelated and irrelevant domain. You know, IT people who report to actuaries and who are unimportant. And I think that's changing and changing very rapidly. And perhaps if we have such a great attendance on what must be one of the, the more graveyard-inclined shifts of any conference, the one on the second day right after lunch, it's great for me to see that, that, that the, the attendance probably reflects this kind of enthusiasm. So I think technology develops in stops and starts. Certainly, um, in the 80s, and I'll, 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 I'll err on the side of giving away my age, but if, I, if, if, if we think back to the days of Odyssey 2001 and, and Knight Rider and talking cars and, um, and self-driving cars, we must be disappointed and, and, and disillusioned. Maybe I must ask, by show of hands, is there anyone in the audience who can tell me what the date 21 October 2015 signifies? Does that date ring a bell for everyone? I see Louis. Correct, right? That's the date on which Marty McFly arrived at the future. And it's a date that's actually quite important because um, at the time last year, the, the coming of 21 October inspired quite a lot of introspection in the domain of technology, saying, you know, this is what we expected and this is where we are. Perhaps the most famous quote, which many of you must have heard, is Peter Thiel, whom you should know as one of the most famous venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, who said, we were promised flying cars and hoverboards, and all we got was 140 characters in Twitter. <laughs> and there's a sense of disillusionment in, in that quote, if, if you follow what I'm saying, you know, as if the velocity and the trajectory of technological development has been different from what we anticipated. But if I can... And judging by the number of people in front of me, it's probably not necessary to, but if I can impress on you just how relevant and important this is, I think two days ago, McKinsey's published a report in which they anticipate that high-paying jobs, I'm not saying that, that this is relevant to us, but it probably is, that, that high-paying jobs in the domain of data collection and analysis will probably be replaced by automation. In fact, their estimate is that 69% of people employed in the domain of data analytics will be replaced by automation quite soon. Um, Elon Musk, at the beginning of this month, a little bit more aggressive, suggested that all jobs will be replaced by artificial intelligence and that governments might end up paying a basic wage or income or subsistence payment to all 
citizens in any particular country. So if I can leave those thoughts to you to suggest that this is very relevant to all of us, um, certainly there are enough critics and, 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 and criticism suggesting that uh, that might not be the case and that artificial intelligence will never reach the domain of human intelligence. Um, but it's certainly relevant for us to, to spend more and more time discussing these things. So today we have Devalt from Deloitte. He's going to be up first talking about hashtag InsureTech. And then Louis is going to be talking about bots. And after that we have Adrian talking about the millennial generation. We have about 70 minutes or 80 minutes. Each talk is going to be about 20 minutes and I'll try to allow five or ten minutes for questions and Q&A after each individual talk. If we have a little bit of time after that, I'll open the floor for a more general Q&A as well. But without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Diervold. He promised to stand right in the middle of the red dot, as he should, um, to talk about InsureTech. Thanks, Diervold. Thank you so much, Christoph. Wow, there's a lot of you. So I'm going to tell you a quick story. My sister recently got married. That's her on her wedding day. It's a great day, great party. For some strange reason, she decided to marry this oak. <laughs> We're pretty sure it was marriage for love and not for looks, but let's leave it at that. So being the overprotective actuarial brother I am after a few whiskeys, few too many whiskeys at this wedding, I decide to pull my brother-in-law aside and ask him a few questions. So I ask him, Peter, you know this means that you need to look after my sister, both in sickness and in health. And he says, well, I pretty much just promised that in front of an ordained minister and everybody I know. So yeah, I know that. And, um, but nevertheless, I decide to push on and I ask him, but what if you die? What if something really, really bad happens? Who is going to look after your wife? Surely you thought about life insurance. <laughs> I guess these are the things that actuaries talk about after a few too many. <laughs> Nevertheless, let's fast forward a couple of months later at a family dinner where Peter decides to pull me aside and he says, so that life insurance thing that we spoke about, I put some more thought into it, and I realized that it is quite important. And I thought marry, marrying your sister would be complicated, but nothing in this world prepared me for the convoluted process I was about to get into to buy life insurance. So Peter, so, so Peter starts telling me his life insurance policy, uh, his life insurance story. And he says, <laughs> and he says, I don't know much about insurance, but I know that I can find pretty much whatever I need online. So I decided to go onto Google and type in life insurance, and Google found me 173 million results in half a second, which was extremely impressive, but very daunting at the same time. So I narrowed my search down, and I said, life insurance in South Africa. But that didn't help much. In fact, the picture got a little bleaker because then I decided to read some of the blogs that Google found me. And these blogs say how bad an investment life insurance is and how insurance companies are just there to steal your money. And this is the conversation I'm having with Peter. 
And so we go on, and, and Peter then admits that he needed some help. So luckily for Peter, his mom's got this friend at the hairdresser whose daughter's boyfriend from school's uncle sells life insurance. And Peter says, I think this is my saving grace, so I decide <laughs> to give him a call. So I, so I look him up, but I can't find him on LinkedIn or Twitter, so I have to give him a call, and I invite him over to my house. And uh, this gentleman, my mother's hairdresser's friend, daughter's boyfriend's uncle, comes over to me. Can we just call him Gert for now? Is that okay? Yeah. Gert <laughs> comes over to my house and uh, drinks my coffee, eats some biscuits, and we have a nice conversation. Gert is a, is a nice guy, but we really struggle to connect because Gert is about three times my age and he's also an avid Donald Trump supporter. <laughs> so the conversation is a little weird, but, but Gert leaves me with a couple of product summaries and marketing brochures. Now, I've seen summaries and brochures in the past, but these were like Shakespearean novels written in the 16th century. I did not understand much of them. This is Peter telling me his uh, story. But nevertheless, Peter says, so I take a week to digest all of this information. And eventually, I decide to go with Company X because I think their marketing brochure is a little bit more exciting. And my dad mentioned that he's had a policy with them for the past 20 years. So I'm very excited and I phone Gert with this good news and I say, Gert, please send over an application form. And Gert does this and he sends over. But it's one of those forms that you need to print out and fill in by hand, scan back in and email back through, right? And this form is about 18 pages long. And Gert tells me, I don't even own a printer or a scanner. Who, who uses that these days? So I end up having to do it at, um, at work, and it takes about three days uh, to do it. But nevertheless, I believe it's quite an important process, and it's important to, to protect my family. So I'm very excited about the fact that I've gone through these, these 18 pages, answered about 1,000 questions, and so... I'm excited sending my application form through to Gert until a week later Gert phones me and he says, now you need to go for a medical test. So I end up, and this is Peter telling me his story, he says, so I end up driving to this clinic that I've never been before and I meet this nurse that I've never seen before and she sticks a needle into my arm and takes my blood. But I realize it's important to protect my family, so I go through this whole process. And lo and behold, four weeks later, a stranger from Company X phones me and tells me that my policy has been issued. And for some strange reason, this call center agent asks for my banking details again, which is really strange because it's definitely one of the thousand questions I needed to answer in my application form. But I give it to her, and Company X takes my first premium. And then my second premium and then my third premium. And apart from taking my premium, I never hear from Company X again, so it feels like I'm paying this money into, abyss, uh, and into an abyss, and I'm not sure what it is being used for or where it is going. And I sit there listening, and, and then Peter tells me that, that he thought, and, and this was just last week, he tells me I was thinking about increasing my cover 
but I don't want to go through this admin intensive process again. And I sit there think, listening to Peter's story, and I'm thinking of something really clever or really actuarial to say, but all I can feel is empathy. Is this the process that people need to go through just to be able to protect their loved ones? And have I been part of this process over the past seven years as an actuary? And as these thoughts are going through my head, Peter looks me straight into the eyes and he says, this is, this is not this is not the scariest part of all. What is going to happen the day when I pass away? If it was this difficult for company X to take my money, <laughs> how difficult is it for them to going, going to be to look after my family when I pass away? And it dawns on me that there are elements of mistrust scattered all around the insurance value chain. And it dawns on me, and I have to admit to myself, that most consumers today view insurance as a necessary evil, as opposed to a force for social good. Which is kind of disturbing for me as an actuary, because I believe insurance can be and should be the ultimate force for social good. And then I decided to do a little bit of research. And CNN Money reports that 25% of policyholders today believe it is okay to defraud your insurance company. Just think about that for a moment. So, when we think about fraud as actuaries, we think about building really fancy machine learning models that is able to identify the key drivers of fraud. So if it's this type of policy bought by this person and he claims at this time it's probably fraud and we need to start investigating. The same with policy churn or lapses. We think, maybe I'll just phone everybody that laughs and I'll ask them, what if we reduce your premium? Will you come back? But have we ever stopped to think that maybe the churn and maybe the fraud is just an effect out of a bigger problem, a lightning rod, rod coming out of a bigger storm. And that storm being an overall mistrust in the insurance system as a whole. And then it's not surprising to see that 73% of millennials today would be more excited to purchase an, a financial services product from a company like Apple or Google, or Amazon, as opposed to the traditional insurance providers. I'm feeling a little bit of a depression sitting in here on the second day of this, so I'm going to pick it up a, a little. And let's get to InsureTech, which is what this talk is supposed to be about, and not a rant about the life insurance uh, selling, selling process. And when you saw the topic of this presentation on your fancy app, um, and it's a great app, by the way, there's someone from ESSA in the room, big ups for, for, for what you guys have done there. But when you saw the title, you guys probably thought I was going to be talking about the future, the art of the possible. Robots, artificial intelligence, fancy machine learning algorithms. 
But what we are seeing and what I've seen in my, insurance, in, my, my investigations into, and research into insurtech firms is that insurtech companies are simply using the technology available today, but they're doing it to put the customer right in the center of things. And in doing so, they're going back to the core principles of insurance. And I would love to show you an example of that. So by show of hands, I know it's awkward, so you don't have to say hello to the guy next to you, but just put up your hand if you've heard of the company called Lemonade. Cool. That's about 5%. Good. So, so I know Lemonade is a short-term insurance company. Um, started trading in uh, New York about two months ago, and I want to show you this quick video of how they are rethinking the short-term insurance game. So there's a lot happening in that video, and I hope you were able to pick up some of the unique features that are happening there. But here are some interesting things that I want to highlight from Lemonade. If we look at the sales and the underwriting process, let's think about how we communicate today with our friends and our family. It's all through texting, it's all through WhatsApp, iMessage, and Snapchat for those, those younger folks among us. So why not sell insurance that way? And so the underwriting process feels a lot less intrusive, and that is the approach Lemonade is taking. And look at Maya, the perfect girl next door. Who wouldn't want to buy life insurance from, uh, or insurance for that matter, from, from Maya, right? But Maya is no pushover. When I tried to buy a policy, she told me straight that she didn't like my Joe Burke address because she, she only works in New York at the moment. But let's look at service and, and claims. And in insurance, we like to talk about increasing the number of touch points with our policyholders. So we want to engage with our policyholders more often. Think about back to Peter's story where he complained about the fact that he keeps on paying his premium, but he never feels like there's a conversation happening with his insurance company. Putting an app into the hands of your policyholder makes it a lot easier. 
And besides improving the customer experience, the obvious benefit we know, of course, is for the insurer, because now we can communicate in real time with our policyholders. But apart from that, we are able to communicate additional offers, a little thing we call, we like to call AppSell. And it allows us to collect a lot of data on our policyholders. And that is the, the real value of it, of course. But I want to talk about the claims stage. And in short-term insurance, we, we know that claims underwriting becomes unbelievably important, right? But using the video technology on your phone, it requires you to admit via video to the things that were stolen or damaged. And in today's day and age, that feels a lot more binding than does a simple signature on a scanned piece of paper that I sent, sent through. But here for me is the beauty of Lemonade and a common theme that we are sh seeing all across insurtech firms at the moment. And I want you to think back to Peter's story of the perceived conflict of interest at claim stage. If Peter claims company X's profit reduces, so is there an inherent conflict of interest at claim stage for this insurance company to approve my claim? So it never feels like a partnership. It always feels like we are in different teams. But this is what Lemonade does. It's, it's quite transparent about this. And similarly to Uber, which we love to talk about, right? They admit upfront that we will take 20% of each of your premiums. But then our profit is done. If we make any risk profits within our business, we will donate that to your charity of choice. Now, I know Adrian is going to, going to speak a little bit later about the millennial market, but if something like this does not appeal to your millennial force for social good, social entrepreneurship, if it doesn't get your blood pumping, then I'm not sure what will. But the real beauty of that is it removes the friction between the insurer and the insured, and now it becomes a partnership. There's another, there's another example that I want to touch on. And it's a company called Kivara. And this is one of, my, one of my favorites. So if Lemonade was the Uber of insurance, then Kivara would be the Facebook of insurance. Because Kivara is all about social connections, and it's extremely clever how they go about risk pooling through your social connections. So let's look at how Guevara works. In Guevara, you become part of a social group, and your premium gets pulled into your group fund, such that if something bad happens, your claim is paid out of that group fund. But here is the nice thing, and again, removing the perceived conflict of interest at claim stage, because Guevara doesn't benefit if you don't claim. Instead, if any risk profits are made, so if your claims are lower than your funds paid in, Kivara uses the, uh, the remaining funds to, to reduce your renewal premium for your group as a whole. So if you don't claim, any, everybody in your social group that you have selected will pay a lower premium next year. So besides the obvious advantages of improving retention and reducing the moral hazard, that we like to complain about a lot as insurers. It removes the friction 
between the insurer and the insured. And now it feels like we're in the same team. But here for me, and, and now you might say, well, that is, that is a concept that is 100 years old. This is a mutual society that, that we are, mutual society model that we are all used to. And you would be partly right. But the beauty of Lemonade is the messaging. And this process that I've just explained to you, Guevara explains in just eight lines of text on the front page of their website. Think about how many companies you know of today that explains the intricate details of how their product works, or would be willing to explain the intricate details of how their products work on the front page of their website. Think if you can name one. So what are we seeing? We're seeing the conflict between the insurer and the insured being removed by insured tech firms simply by using the technology that is available today. But what I want to talk about is how Guevara decides on your social grouping. And the beauty of it is, it is that they do not decide. It's completely customizable. Another thing that is very, very attractive to the millennial market. So you can either decide to join a public group, like everybody that are musicians by trade, for example, or everybody that stays in a certain area. But what becomes beautiful is being able to create your own social groups to join, your own insurance groups. So now I can invite my family and friends to join Guevara via social media platforms. So obviously this, this has got great advantages in terms of retention and moral hazard, but it becomes the perfect self-selection model because now I'm only going to invite my granny that only uses her car three times a week to go to the hairdresser, the church, and the pick and pay. And I'm only going to be inviting my friend who cycles to work and uses Uber for, for everything else. So it becomes a perfect self-selection model. And again, the friction between the insurer and the insurer reduces. So now I'm out of time, and I would like to close off with a quick thought. So I don't know about you, but when I decided to get into this insurance game and become an actuary, I had and I still have a great love for solving complex business problems. But I also saw insurance as a force for social good. I remember reading this article in high school about our English villages in the 1600s at the outbreak of smallpox, which claimed hundreds of lives, came together and pooled their resources. So I said, if someone gets in trouble, so if, if someone is affected by smallpox or loses a relative or a breadwinner, we are able to help those people out. So it's a simple mechanism that brings people together. And somewhere along the line, this concept got lost. So I want to end off with a challenge. And a challenge specifically because I know we've got some of the cleverest people in the room here today. And because I like to believe that South Africa is one of the most innovative countries in the world. And I know that as actuaries, we share a love for solving complex business problems. And Peter's problem is a complex one. And it's a business problem. And it's a problem where actuaries are perfectly placed 
to solve this problem, but it's a problem of a different kind. It's a problem that's less about the accuracy of our models, but more about the people and the greater social good that we are trying to serve. And with that, I would like to thank you. Any good questions? Thank you very much, Devout, for a fascinating talk, and I think leaving us with an impression of a market that's just begging to be disrupted. Um, I'm going to give about five minutes for a quick, quick Q&A, bearing in mind that we probably will have some more time at the end of the session, depending on how it goes. Uh, there should be some roaming mics. Can I just see by a wave and a show of hands? Any questions? I see a hand over there. Keith, if you can help us out. And while the mic is going in that direction, if there are any other questions, can you preemptively start waving? I see another hand over here. If we can get another mic in this direction, please. Uh, hello. Thanks. Okay, go. cool. It's on. Um, just want to go back to the whole lemonade thing and everything like that and to your, to your brother-in-law. Um, Look, this might just be, be my opinion, but if I'm going to go buy, let's say, life insurance and it's going to be you know, very big premi uh, very big benefit payout, isn't that saying which I want like a broker to hold my hand, I want those long forms to make sure that I'm doing this thing properly, whereas if I'm going on the app, I understand the app's appeal for, say, short-term insurance, but for something like life insurance, don't you want all those formalities just so that you know that you are doing the right thing and that you're not buying the wrong cover. Yeah, yeah. So, so great, great question. Um, and I think you're right. I think there are a lot of people that would prefer that way. I wouldn't. And I think, I think that's about that's what it's about. I think we've catered really well for that segment of the market up to date, and that's the model that's been working for a, for a very long time. But me personally, I prefer real-time and a more transparent process and figuring things out as I go along. But it's different for different people. And I think the message here is there is a segment of the market that we are missing. And we are missing them pretty badly. And they are going to be picked up by startups coming into the market. And um, I did a talk earlier this morning about analytics and insurance, but specifically how startups are coming into the market and how much are being invested and how few of them actually employ actuaries. So, so the point here is there is a segment of this market that we are missing and we need to find a solution to that and pretty much just improve Peter's experience because he's pretty negative about company X at the moment. Although it, needs, it's, it, should, be a, it should feel like a partnership. It should feel like you're in the same team, right? I think another question right here, and, and while this question comes, if you could start any more questions, just try and grab the attention of one of the roving mics so we can save some time. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Thanks very much. Um, really good presentation, and really nice to see those, how those businesses are actually developing. I came from the January session before lunch where they talked about this is the future, and now it's nice to have the future happen immediately afterwards. So well done. <laughs> good follow-through. Um, just out of, out of curiosity, the Guevara model, uh, obviously they're not creating tiny little risk pools of nine people, so do they just do some sort of rating 
you know, me and my yeah. nine friends, if we all good, we're going to get slightly lower premiums, but there's still a big risk pool underneath. Is that what they're doing? Yeah. So, so in the public groups, the risk pool becomes a little bit easier because those, those, those groups are, are a lot bigger. But, but the social grouping, and you're, you're, if, you, if, you, if you choose a personalized group that is less about risk pooling, and it's more about, it's more about reducing the moral hazard, and creating self-selection. That is, that is what it's about. And, and obviously the on-sale model as well, because now I'm going to invite my family and friends because I've had a positive experience with this, this company. But it's also about reducing the moral hazard because now I'm not going to claim because I'm in the same pool as my granny and my dad and my best friend, right? Um, so, that's more, so the risk pooling is not done within the, uh, within the smaller group. Yeah. Right, I saw a mic floating in that general direction uh, over there. Uh, I'll take one more question, and if it's a quick question, I'll take two more. So do wave your hand yeah, um, no. if there's another one. Thanks. This is a, this is a quick one. Um, Devil, thanks for the presentation. Just on the, on the, on the lemonade example you had, um, submitting the claim or approving the claim is in six seconds, six seconds or whatever it was. Um, can you just give us some, some more background in terms of how do they make sure there's no fraud involved. I've, I've read up and some of it apparently yeah. like these cameras pick up these days if you're dishonest literally on the, on the camera or something. But uh, can you give yeah. us some info, info on that? Yeah, so, so maybe Louis can cover that after we, <laughs> with these bots are coming. But, but I'm not aware of whether they pick that up uh, through video technology and whether they have very concrete plans about combating fraud. But how do we combat fraud at the moment? in short-term insurance, and maybe I'm not a short-term insurance actuary, but how do we combat it at, at the moment? I can't believe that it's extremely effective at the moment. And adding additional, so, so adding this video admission, I'm sure is going to go a long way to work towards reducing uh, fraud and claims, right? Because it's a lot more difficult to lie to a camera and to see myself lying when, I, when that plays back versus lying on a piece of paper and sending that through to someone I don't know at company Y, for example. Does that answer your question? It's, it's, okay. Okay, everyone, I think let's wrap it up here. Bearing in mind there might be more opportunity and just join me in thanking Diervold once again for a brilliant... <laughs>